Our Gospel of Love Dear friend, tell me if you've ever heard this expression before, old habits die hard. If that's true, then in my family the habit of prayer will likely live on forever. Long before Johnny and I were even born, our mother and father decided they would teach us about the power of prayer and the faith, hope, and love that one can receive from it. By the time I came into the picture, this was the pillar of our family identity and the most logical way for my parents to teach Johnny and I everything they wanted us to know. After all, they believed the best way to raise good boys into great men was to teach them about God. Prayer, as they explained it, was our way of talking to God. In essence, it was simply a conversation. Growing up, it became a family tradition to pull out my mother's treasure box and read a card from it at the dinner table, especially during more formal dinners. My mother loved to cook, even for bigger crowds of family or friends, and both cooking and prayer became her way of sharing God's love with others. These cards, which I suspect she lovingly created herself, had short notes written on them describing something the reader was thankful for. Sometimes a note was based on a particular story or piece of scripture, other times on something reflecting our own family experience or circumstances. There were even notes, I remember, that were clearly meant to represent something we should try to be thankful for in the future. I now realize these were the cards that were meant to teach us more specifically about hope. Together, the contents of this beautifully simple box would lead us into prayer. The rule was, whoever read the card was responsible for starting that night's prayer. Others could then jump in and add to it if they felt moved by the spirit of the affair. More often than not, our prayers were short and sweet, but there were a few longer ones sprinkled in over the years. In either case, the prayers inspired by this special box would often lead to deeper conversations about gratitude, love, compassion, and even morality, about strength and resilience, conviction, in short, about faith. Prayer was the pillar of our family identity, and the gospel was our foundation. Now, from a kid's perspective, praying is just something you're supposed to do, but I never minded. I've always been quite the talker myself, so I'd happily have a conversation with God or anyone else for that matter, as long as someone was willing to listen. I may have been responsible for a few of those longer prayers I mentioned before. Johnny usually kept his prayers brief but meaningful, and we both did our best to understand and appreciate the lessons our parents were trying to teach us through this entire spiritual exercise. But here's the thing. As a kid, you sometimes hear what your parents are saying, but you don't know how to truly listen to what they're actually trying to teach you. You don't fully understand what it all means on a deeper level. When it comes to things like faith and love, for example, those are gifts that have to be experienced in order to be truly understood and appreciated. Johnny and I, like most kids, would have to find this in our own way. As fate would have it, Baseball, of all things, would help us most in that noble pursuit. Baseball would become our gospel. Our gospel of love. Let me back up for a minute, because this is where my own story, the life of Elijah Andrews, begins. This is where my relationship with my big brother starts to come into focus. This is where we begin to understand what music, family, faith, storms, and even baseball all have in common.
It was the summer of 1988. Mom was about seven months pregnant with me. Johnny had just turned four a couple of months earlier. It had been a stifling summer coupled with intense monsoons. Sweltering heat followed by torrential downpours followed by even more sweltering heat. The powerful storms offered dazzling displays of lightning perfection and the heavy rains gave way to extreme flooding. Dad was thrilled. More storms for him to chase after with youthful exuberance and familiar admiration. It was also a chance for him to continue sharing his favorite hobby with his eldest son. Dad had actually introduced Johnny to the thrills of storm chasing when he was a little baby. My brother was colicky as a newborn, and the only thing that seemed to calm him down was a long car ride with our father. Legend has it, he was the most at ease when he and Dad were out chasing a storm. A couple of storm chasers. <laughs> That's funny. It seems Johnny's always had a fascination with storms as well, I suppose. That's interesting. As it turns out, the monsoons of 1988 would provide the perfect distraction for Dad and Johnny. They'd also force my brother to stay inside when Dad was working. He would need to find another healthy distraction. Mom was quite anxious that summer. It had been a difficult pregnancy for her, to say the least, and I wasn't making matters any easier with some complications of my own. Come to think of it, I'm realizing now that even before Johnny and I were born... We were different in a lot of ways. Mom's pregnancy with him was pretty smooth sailing. Aside from being a really big baby, Johnny announced his arrival to the world with overall ease. This in itself was seen as a miracle by our parents, having gone through a miscarriage a few years earlier. They were pregnant with a girl at the time, an adventure they were both thrilled about until tragedy struck. I'm pretty sure my mom's never really gotten over that and it certainly made her much more anxious during her pregnancies with Johnny and I both. Her and Dad prayed together every night of both pregnancies and promised God they would make us the center of their universe, protecting us through their faith in Him if we were okay. When it came to her pregnancy with me, Mom had good reason to be concerned, especially in those final few months before I announced my arrival. No smooth sailing there. After surviving a few mild complications in the first two trimesters, Mom and I made things really interesting in the third. We developed preeclampsia. Simply put, this happens when the mother has high blood pressure in addition to protein in her urine and abnormalities in the liver or kidney. It only affects about 5% of pregnancies, and expectant mothers and their babies usually do fine with proper care. But it can progress quickly, and severe preeclampsia can affect many organs and cause serious or even life-threatening problems for the mom and baby. As such, women whose preeclampsia is severe or getting worse need to deliver early. Sounds like an infomercial, right? Well, now you're up to speed. So there we were, mom having her difficulties with me, me having difficulties with life, and poor little Johnny having difficulties understanding it all. He just wanted his mom and soon-to-be brother to be okay. But he also needed something to take his mind off the whole ordeal. He needed inspiration. He needed excitement. And when Dad was working, and he couldn't find those things in a storm to chase, he ended up finding them somewhere else. You may have guessed it. Baseball. For a young boy trapped inside all day on account of the rain, watching baseball was the only way to see a ray of light through the dark clouds. 
It was like music to Johnny's ears. It's all he wanted to do in those final months leading up to my birthday. Watch baseball. But it wasn't just baseball alone that grabbed a hold of his imagination like nothing else could that summer. And it wasn't just any team. For my big brother, in the summer and fall of 1988, it was all about the Oakland Athletics. Johnny fell for them fast. You could say they were his first true love. He loved everything about them. He loved their bright green jerseys, his favorite color. He loved their catchy nickname, the A's, his favorite letter. And he loved their swagger, especially that of Mark McGuire, his favorite player. By the time playoff baseball began that September, Johnny had basically become the A's biggest fan. And Mom didn't mind them too much either, seeing as they were basically her savior during that last trimester. Much to Johnny's delight, his Oakland A's dominated early on in the playoffs that year. They appeared to be almost unbeatable. But when they met the Boston Red Sox, one of the most storied franchises in baseball history in the final round before the World Series, a lot of experts actually picked them to lose. They were a young team, and it was assumed they might not be quite ready for the biggest spotlight in the sport just yet. They proved the doubters wrong. The A's went on to sweep that round four games to none, and they did it with some flair. They danced into the 1988 World Series with some real swagger. Johnny obviously loved it. There were others who did not. This list would include their opponent for the crown that year, the Los Angeles Dodgers. They came into the 88 season having already won five World Series championships and were a staple in America's pastime. The Dodgers were an old respected standby, a franchise that did things the right way and won without the need to flaunt it. At least that's the way some people saw it. They were perhaps the easy team to root for in 1988, yet found themselves playing the role of the underdog in this soon-to-be legendary series. For history's sake, they would play the role of the hero. In the days leading up to Game 1 on October 15th, Johnny found himself getting more and more nervous. He felt storms of excitement and fear battling each other constantly. And he didn't like that some were calling his Oakland A's the villain. Johnny just knew his team was going to win the World Series. They would be his hero, regardless of what anyone else said or thought. For Mom and Dad, the days leading up to October 15th offered their own battles of fear and excitement. The preeclampsia was trending in the wrong direction, so Mom and I were spending a lot of time at the hospital. Dad was doing his best balancing act of going from work to home with Johnny, to the hospital to see us, to wherever he could catch a breath or say a much-needed prayer. He eventually gave Papa Williams a call to let him know what was going on, a decision my dad knew came with consequences. Papa Williams was either going to scream at Dad for putting Mom through this and then not telling him about it, or insist on driving all the way out to Jefferson, New Mexico, from South Carolina to help everyone out. The latter was the option Papa Williams went with. So, Mom, Dad, and Johnny were all excited about that. Well, Johnny was at least. It took Papa and Granny Williams a few days to arrive, of course, but by the time they did, there was plenty of excitement to go around. My grandfather couldn't stop talking about the drive out there and was especially electrified by the time they had spent at the Alamo in Texas. I've never seen anything quite like it, he would say. In fact, he still talks about that trip to this day. Remember, old habits die hard. Johnny was ecstatic to see his papa and granny again. It had been a while. 
and he couldn't wait to tell them all about his new obsession with baseball and his favorite baseball team. And, let's not forget, about his brother-to-be. In the middle of all of this, Johnny hadn't forgotten about me in the least. He was always asking Mom and Dad about my impending birthday. He was diligently keeping track of everything he wanted to teach and share with me. He was meticulously planning out our future. Even as a four-year-old, Johnny had it all planned out like a tour guide. Now, of course, a large portion of that tour would include baseball. By the time October 15th finally arrived, Mom and I were in pretty bad shape. To be safe, Dad rushed us over to the Hamilton County Hospital that morning while Papa and Granny Williams took care of Johnny at home. They were instructed to stay by the phone for updates and politely told to be ready to come down to the hospital if needed. It was a rough day for everyone, including my big brother. He's always told me he remembers that day well. He says he was really excited about the World Series game that night, but scared for the first time that something might happen to me or mom. He didn't know what he could possibly do to help. But there was one thing he thought of. To pray. Johnny has always sworn he prayed all day long on October 15, 1988. For an Oakland A's win, and for his mom and little brother to be okay. That afternoon, Papa Williams got a call from Dad telling him they better come to the hospital. The doctors had decided it might be best to induce an early delivery, something the medical profession tried to avoid at the time if the baby was less than 37 weeks along. I was a bit short of that threshold, but it seemed like the best option given the circumstances. So Papa and Granny packed a small bag of clothes for them and Johnny, and drove the 13 miles it took to get to the Hamilton County Hospital from our quaint two-bedroom house in Jefferson, New Mexico. They would soon find out Johnny had also thrown in a couple of extra items for himself into their bag, including his prized Wilson baseball glove and his favorite Mark McGuire playing card. When they got to the hospital, they were able to take turns visiting Mom. Papa and Granny went to see her first, while Dad did his best to reassure Johnny everything was going to work out. God is watching over us, son, Dad would say. When he walked Johnny back to visit Mom, she said the exact same thing. Only she added, I've been praying all day. For your Oakland A's to win and for your little brother to be okay. I did too, Mommy, Johnny exclaimed. And with that, he was ready to finally watch the game. Game 1 of the 1988 World Series was a nail-biter through and through. The game began with a bang, seeing the Dodgers score two runs in the bottom of the first inning. The A's answered the call quickly, scoring four runs in the top of the second. The next three innings were more or less a pitcher's duel, with only a few hits recorded and one run scored by the Dodgers in the bottom of the sixth inning. Johnny and Papa Williams were glued to the TV in the waiting room this whole time, while Dad ran back and forth, updating everyone on Mom and I's progress. That process was a nail-biter, too, offering false alarms of promising developments coupled with long periods of disappointing stagnation. At one point, a doctor even came out and told Dad it was okay to just relax for a little while. Watch the game with your family, he told him. So in the eighth inning, Dad decided to settle in for a bit. Outside the hospital, it started snowing. Normally, snow in October, in the desert of all places, would have gotten Johnny out of his seat and into the stormy action. But this time, there was no way he was leaving his seat for a second. When the ninth inning began, with the A's still up 4-3, to three, even Dad was on the edge of his seat and tethered to the tension of the game. At that moment, I imagine it helped him escape the fear and anxiety he'd been feeling all day. 
he may have even gotten completely lost in the excitement of it all. Who could blame him? Even now, when Dad tells the story of what happened next that night, you can see how it made him feel. His face lights up, his body swells with youthful energy, and his words spin a tale that nearly transports you to that very time and place. Funny how memories can do that. It was the bottom of the ninth inning. The Dodgers were still trailing 4-3 to three and down to their very last out. They had one man on first base, right fielder Mike Davis, but would need him to score just to tie the game. Dennis Eckersley, the man you wanted on the mound in moments like this, was waiting for the next batter to step up to the plate. Expecting a different player who had been warming up in the on-deck circle to walk to the plate, Eckersley watched as Kirk Gibson hobbled his way to the batter's box. It would be Gibson's one and only appearance in the 1988 World Series. And what a dramatic appearance it was. Kirk Gibson could hardly stand up, much less do any damage at the plate. He had been hurt since the previous series against the New York Mets, injuring both of his legs. So he wasn't expected to play at all that night. He had just begun taking some practice swings in the Dodgers clubhouse when the inning began. Famed sportscaster Bob Costas later said he could hear Gibson's agonizing grunts after every practice hit. Nonetheless, he was a veteran all-star who had helped the Dodgers get to the World Series in the first place and was a smart clutch hitter. He represented the potential winning run if he could just get on base. It quickly became a real pitching duel as Eckersley threw Gibson some of his best stuff, most of which were fouled off. Each time, you could see how badly Gibson was hurting. On one foul ball, he did his best to hobble towards first base but didn't get very far. Returning to the plate, he quickly got behind the count 0-2 and was down to his last strike. He laid off the next couple of pitches and eventually pushed the count to three balls and two strikes. It was down to the very last pitch. Gibson motioned for a timeout from the umpire, stepped out of the batter's box, and took a deep breath. After seeming to gather his nerves, he limped back up to the plate. Hall of Fame broadcaster Vin Scully made the call that night. And what a memorable call it was. Sachs is waiting on deck, but the game right now is at the plate. Eckersley wound up and delivered the pitch. Gibson reached for the ball, balancing on one leg and swung his bat awkwardly. Somehow, he made contact. High fly ball into right field. She is gone. Gibson could hardly even make it around the bases. But he did, and the Dodgers won the game. Unbelievable. Here's the part I didn't tell you. Dad actually missed most of that. In fact, he saw Mike Davis get walked, but was then called back to be with Mom before Gibson ever stepped up to the plate. He never saw his legendary at bat or got to bear witness to history being made. He didn't watch as the Dodgers became the hero and Johnny stood frozen in heartbroken disbelief. He missed it because something else miraculous was happening. I was born shortly after. It's as if Vin Scully made the call for us too that night. In a year that has been so improbable, the impossible has happened. Now, I don't know if my birth was overcoming the impossible. I don't want to be too hyperbolic here. But I do know that baseball becoming another pillar of our family identity sure was improbable. 
It would make perfect sense for two young boys to love a game like baseball, of course, and to spend a lot of time playing it together. But for us, it goes much deeper than that. Johnny likes to say, when he met and held me for the first time the next morning, I instantly became one of his greatest heroes. He was proud of me from the moment I arrived. The first thing he did was give me his prized Wilson baseball glove and his favorite Mark McGuire playing card. The way Johnny saw it, I deserved something special to commemorate my birthday. He decided right then and there his little brother was a fighter. I was able to persevere, just like Kirk Gibson did on that magical October night. Johnny was shocked and disappointed his A's had lost, no doubt, but he was also inspired by the greater miracles that took place that night. Johnny has always told me I was the calm after the storm. And baseball was quickly going to become our gospel. Over the years, baseball would define Johnny and I's relationship and often carry us through. Through baseball, Johnny would be right by my side every step of the way, protecting me, teaching me, inspiring me. Baseball would offer us hope for our most noble pursuit. It was our way of finding and sharing our gospel, our gospel of love and faith. It's what gave us faith in ourselves and in each other. Dear friend, Baseball is not only one of the pillars of Johnny and I's relationship, or the conduit through which so much of our gospel was built. Baseball, of all things, is an instrument. An instrument that will help play the songs of my story. Letter number two. Mom to Eli. My dearest Elijah, your brother wanted me to write you a letter for him. This is what he had to say. Hi, Eli. I am so excited to be your big brother. Mommy and Daddy and me prayed every night that you would be okay. I'm so glad God listened. And now that you're coming home, we get to do everything together, especially baseball. We're going to have so much fun, and I'll be right by your side the whole time. I, I love you so much, little bro. We all do. Your big brother, Johnny. <laughs> Johnny is right. We all love you, Eli. And we're so thankful God answered our prayers. With all my love, Mom.